Coming up today on the Audible, we will talk about the NCAA basketball tournament, the story you should be following, as well as the Penn State scandal, what's going on with Baylor, and much more with the great Dan Wetzel as he joins us. Welcome back to the Audible. I am Bruce Feldman. There is no Stu Mandel today. Stu is tied up after all his bracketology work with some heavy babysitting duties that take precedent. But we have a really, really good substitute. He is the great Dan Wetzel from Yahoo Sports. Dan is an authority on all things, but he's spent a lot of time as a college basketball insider and expert. So we'll talk to him about the NCAA tournament. And we'll also get into some bigger issues as they relate to Penn State, that scandal which has popped up back in the news, as well as Baylor and the fallout of the scandal there and some of the news going on in Waco, and much, much more that I think you guys will be really interested in. So with that, let's get to our guest. Dan, thanks for joining me today on The Audible. Yes, well, since Stu's not here, we're going to get to talk about some stuff that I'm more interested in. But everyone's talking NCAA tournament. You've been a big-time college basketball guy for a long time. And I'm curious, your pick to win it all is West Virginia, is that correct? I'm picking West Virginia. I used to cover college basketball exclusively back at uh, Sportsline and CBS Sportsline, Basketball Times, lots of things. I do not cover much of them anymore. And so part of my uh, appeal on West Virginia is I just like them. And uh, I think it would be awesome to see West Virginia win a national championship in something other than a rifle. <laughs> you know they win the rifle title a lot? I've seen the mascot. I can see why they would win the rifle title. Yeah, they beat, you know who their big rival is, is Army. That makes sense. And, uh, yeah, that makes sense. As you might expect, it's a, little, it's a little unnerving that West Virginia is better at rifle than Army. Yeah, that is true. A uh, little aside, so myself and your your colleague, we'll call him your protege since you recruited him over there, Pat Forty, I once had a pretty fun night in Morgantown, and I'm going to keep it PG as much as possible here, but at one point we ended up at a bar where we were probably too old to be in the bar. But anyway, um, this guy comes up, and in almost any other place, he would have looked like a Hasidic Jew, but instead, he was the Mountaineer mascot. And I think he'd been drinking, and he told me about how much action he gets. That wasn't the word he used, but that's the word I'll use here. Um, and I was a bit incredulous, and I was just kind of, you know, whatever. He goes, no, man, I get more than any – the two – I don't want to say the two stars of the team, but two of the better players were Mike Ganzi and, and Patrick Beeline at the time. And I was just like, get the fuck out of here. He was like, no, I'm not kidding. And he was like kind of annoyed that I didn't believe him, you know. So um, – yeah, well, look, he was he, he was playing to his audience, yeah. so. Um, yeah, I, well, it's very recognizable. I don't know. That's, that's a, that is a little, there's a lot of unnerving things about Morgantown. It's just great. I was at a bar once in Morgantown, and these two girls got in a fight, and uh, uh, they're pulling each other's hair, and one of them ripped the extensions out <laughs> of the other one's hair. And then, in, 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 as a way of a victory dance, stood up and waved them around like a, like a terrible towel, like the Steelers have. Wow. Um, I went to an entire podcast of just Morgantown 
bar story. I know. I have an awesome story. I cannot. To win. This is why I'm rooting for the Mountaineers. So I have a couple of. First, let me ask you this basketball question. So, how realistic is it that Hugs' team can actually win it? I know they're athletic, um, and they they're obviously going to play good defense. How viable are they? All right. So here's the tenet of my faith, which is shaky, but the press. There's just no good guards in college basketball. There's not enough good guards, and especially if you get, you only have one day to prepare for the press. West Virginia can beat you. That's their. That is what they can do to you. If you're not, if you don't have really good guard play, and you're ready to go against them, they can they can they can wipe you out with easy baskets. They don't play great offensively. They're not the most talented team. But I don't think this is a year where you're looking at one or two teams and saying, no, this isn't like the Anthony Davis Kentucky team or something like that. It's like who's beating these guys. Um, I think it's kind of open, and I don't think they're that bad. And I also, you look at some of the trends, it's kind of good to be, it's good to lose your conference championship game. It's good, you got to look at your matchups. They're going to get Gonzaga in the, in the, their regional. Uh, I don't, I don't hate their, their thing. I think they're going to get like Notre Dame. You know, maybe they can get by them in the second round. I just think they got a shot as much as anybody else. But, and I'm trying to, it, it's not a, I did not, I, I, I didn't spend many hours. Uh, but it's a good narrative. Where uh, so? Where did all the good guards go? I, Kansas has a good guard, right? I mean, his assist to turnover ratio is off the charts, right? Kansas could beat him, sure, but they wouldn't meet him till the finals. Yeah, no fun picking Kansas or Kentucky. I don't want to be right. And just like I'm one of one thousand guys who's right. I'm the only one. You're on the very thin branch. So where did all the good guards go? I mean, you did a great book about recruiting probably, I don't know, I want to say 10 years ago. It might be 20 now, Soul Influence, right? And it dealt with the, I don't know if you call it the grassroots element of college basketball or recruiting and everything that goes into it. And I feel like it's, I don't want to say it's come full circle. It feels every bit as unseemly. How long ago was that book, by the way? 2000, that one came out. All right, so it is almost 20 years ago. How much different is the landscape now than it was back then? The difference in terms of recruiting and stuff, not, not, not much at all. You, you have to recruit through the summer. Um, at that point, you know, I would, I would do like radio for the shows, like do radio interviews to promote soul influence. And like, you'd have to say like, well, there's these recruiting tournaments in the summer, AAU ball and like, you want to recruit a player, you got to know the AAU coach. And the radio guys are like, nah, that's not true. Like, it was such a new concept then. So back then it was like, yeah, there's these guys, and they're, they're these all-star teams basically. And so they've replaced the high school coach. That's still the case. You've got to recruit through those guys. What was different back then was Nike and Adidas were waging a, a real battle to try to find the, quote, next Michael Jordan. I remember when Kobe came up, it was him and Tim Thomas were that same class. Was that in that window or is that predate him a little bit? Kobe's in the book. It was a big part of the book. And Kobe was thought to be the next Jordan, but he wasn't. Really, it was LeBron was the next Jordan. But they knew he was coming. You know, I mean, inevitably, someone's going to be that star. Kobe, Kobe was big and Kobe got to L.A. and Kobe won a lot of titles, but he kind of became more popular later. Um. But, you know, you had guys like Tracy McGrady making huge deals. Like, Tracy McGrady signed a, a sneaker deal, and in the provision of the deal, he gave 
150 grand a year went to is, I don't know what you described the guy. Joel Hopkins? Joel, or is it? Joel Hopkins, yeah. Joel Hopkins got 150 grand for six years, so he got 900 grand. Um, so that was the motivation. You had this huge shoe money, and they were throwing money at these guys and saying, this guy might be it, and this guy might be it. And then it eventually became LeBron has really been the guy. Uh, and then, you know, now you have like a Steph Curry doesn't really fit because he became a star late. Um, but back then, that was the big thing. So what you really had were these two shoe companies really battling. And so each guy needed a team in Baltimore and a team in Philly and a team in Indiana. And then there'd be these local battles over players. And it was crazy because you had basically kids getting inducements on to play what you know, what summer team to play, like, U15 basketball. Like, just totally nuts. But if you got the right guy, there might be a million-dollar payout for you. But it's crazy how many guys were anointed. Like, I remember going to Teaneck every summer, and I'm trying to remember if it was Adidas or Nike at that point, and I felt like every year there was some guy who was supposed to be a really big deal, and then you find out either he really wasn't a developed game or he just kind of was was overhyped. Well, obviously, LeBron wasn't that guy. Um, or didn't prove to be that guy, but it just felt like it was like cyclical where they would yeah. you think that. You prove yourself at ABCD camp or the Nike camp. And, I, you know, I used to, as much as I wrote critically about some of the stuff in it, those events, and they still are, are gold. Because this isn't like a combine or even like... Right, right. You're playing the actual sport against the actual top guys. It isn't like football. It's more real. Like one-on-one, I remember watching Lamar Odom he was rated higher than Tracy McGrady for a while. And they played a couple games one-on-one, and you could see Tracy McGrady was better. Not a lot better. Like, Lamar Odom was obviously a great player and played however many years in the NBA. But McGrady was better. I mean, you're going one-on-one. You can totally tell who's better. And so if you couldn't play, you were going to get exposed. And that's like LeBron had to step into that with huge height. And he dominated and made it. Other guys like Lenny Cook or, like you said, Shea Cotton was a Yeah, player. Lenny Cook, Some that's a different would develop early, and they'd be like the greatest ninth grader. But then by the time they're seniors, all the other kids had grown up, you know, and, and, and just filled out and just become more athletic. And, and it, you, you had to be a ball player, not just that athletic. There's some great battles. There still are. I mean, it's just... Well, I remember one year, you mentioned McGrady. I was at the one where, and I ended up doing this story like 10 years later. It might have been even more than 10 years later on this scene where Tracy McGrady dunked on a guy who was a top 50 player who just kind of went into a free fall there. He ended up going to five different schools, and he ended up passing away like in his late 20s. Um, And ironically enough, like I kind of tracked the story, and his last school, like he started out at St. John's. I think he was there with Fran. And Lamar Odom and, and uh, Ron Artest. What, the big guy? Yeah, James Seven. Felton. James Felton. And then he went to Florida State. He went to, I forgot what, maybe St. Peter's. It was a New Jersey school. And then he ended up at FDU. And so I go to his senior day, and it's on the very court he got dunked on, where everybody said he was like kind of changed his life, which he really said it, it was kind of half in and half out on that. And he had three kids. I want to say he had his first kid at maybe 13 or 14. And so he had three kids. He was 6'10", 300 pounds. He'd been skinny before. You know, he's still a good enough player. And there was so many crazy twists because after he finished, Joe Bryant, Kobe's dad, kind of mentored him. And it was just a, it was just a crazy story. And you kind of see how small the, 
that youth basketball circuit really is and how many characters come in and out. And at that time, you know, I spent a bunch of time with Joe Bryant and he wasn't even that close to Kobe. Like they had a little bit of a falling out. It was just, it was just kind of a weird, it was, it was all very bittersweet, all of it, you know. And the, I, it's a traveling family of it. And, and, you know, I know people look at AAU ball and it's like all negative and they're always blaming um, blaming summer basketball for all the ills of the NBA or this or that, but you know it's a lot of kids that are dreaming big. It's very competitive, and they're in very pressurized situations. It's 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 different, and you know we tried to do that in the book. It's different than what necessarily people think. It doesn't mean there's all sorts of shenanigans going on because there are, but there's all sorts of shenanigans going on at at, at every level of sport. Um, but yeah, those guys battle each other and play, and they're on this team, and they're at this camp together, and they're all pursuing the exact same dream. And a lot of them have – there's no plan B for a lot of these guys. Like, this is it. And so the bonds that they create are really tight. And so I think sometimes, like, people want the old NBA where you didn't know each other. And so then you just, you know, you had, you know, Bill Lambeer or something just elbowing a guy in the face. Right. Like, it doesn't work that way anymore. Like, these guys know each other, and as much as fans and, like, it's almost like like all everyone else is late to the party. Like, these guys are family in a way. It's like, you know, we made it. It was hard. Like, they threw a thousand of us out there on the summer circuit and said, hey, man, 40, 30, 40, you're going to make the league. That's it. And, and, and I'm one of the survivors on that. And I fought and made it. And we know a lot of guys who didn't. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna handshake before you know. I'm gonna have I'm gonna love that guy. And I always think that criticism of like, oh, these guys are they're soft on each other. Um, I think it's you know it isn't really. I don't think it's really respectful for the journey that these guys took. People think, oh, hey, you ball, it's so easy, and you just fly around and play basketball. Is, and I know the games aren't always super competitive, but there's there's pressure, you know, like they're trying to chase something. And so maybe, the, you know, the games aren't played with the final four level intensity because you're playing three games in a day in Vegas. But it doesn't mean that there isn't serious competitiveness and keeping an eye on that guy and because it's like, hey, we're all coming out in the same draft class and one of us get picked. Yeah, I mean, it is very fascinating. Kind of there is an element, I want to say like a Lord of the Flies kind of component of it, you know, where oh, yeah. they're just kind of, they're almost their own brokers and... You know, again, I'm not, you know, it's easy to be cynical when you kind of look down at some of this, but I think when you see kind of when you're in the midst of it, it's a little, it's a little more human or a lot more human than people want to, you know, I try to catch myself because sometimes you sit behind and you see stuff on social media now and you just kind of like, you want to turn your nose up at it. And I mean, some of this is human nature, I think too. So, um, Stu had a question he wanted me to make sure I asked. Since since you are picking West Virginia to win it all, what is your it's best about Northwestern basketball? No, we're we're steering clear of that. That that thing has been rowed to the dirt. So, um, the what is your best Bob Huggins story that you can tell? My best Bob Huggins story that I can tell. <laughs> uh, actually, I've seen this. I think I've seen him tell this story. So, and this is the the part of that I can tell is the key here. But um, Kenyon Martin actually told me a story, and then I've since asked him, and this is what he does. 
he was mad at Kenyon Martin at one point. And one of the ways he gets guys is, like, if you screw up, you don't run laps or suicides. He has, like, a treadmill. And uh, he puts the guy in the treadmill and jacks up the, uh, the ramp, and then they have to sprint on the treadmill. This is a long, you know, whenever Kenyon Martin was there, a long time ago. Right. So supposedly, he gave Kenyon Martin a 45-pound plate, like a weight, and he had him start jog, hold it across his chest, like hug it. Mm-hmm. And then he was jogging, and this was the punishment. And Huggins was so mad at him, he went over and started hitting the, uh, the, the speed button, so it went up. And then Kenyon's, like, sprinting as fast as he can, and it's getting ridiculous, but he can't drop the weight. <laughs> he can't reach out and stop the machine because he's holding the 45. <laughs> and he just makes the guy go crazy until he, like, practically breaks down and falls. And then hits the stop button. Like, that's how he would – they always say, like, you know, he's tougher than the players or he's crazier than the players. Like, that's how he would get through to these guys. Like, don't mess with me. I'm nuts. Yeah, he definitely that's had like, that look. Well, I don't know if he's still pulling that trick anymore, but this is the old school stuff. He'd probably get fired if he did that one today. Yeah. Um, I had a story that – so the year after he had his – I don't want to say his heart attack. Is that what it was? I'm trying to remember exactly. This is, you know, this is going back. Uh, they played, this is going back to the, to the cop and wrath days at UVM for, for a time reference. Yeah. So they're coming out of, out of, uh, they're playing in Salt Lake city and I am there. And our friend Pete Thamel is like, he has a buddy of his who is now, you know, it's like when you're on one of those, you meet the buddy of your buddy saying, go hang out with this guy. So his buddy at the time was the, either the West for either the, uh, Vermont, play-by-play guy or radio voice, like, or work with the team. I forgot which he was. I think he was the radio voice. He's since gone on to be a big hockey executive. He's a radio guy, yeah, I know that Yeah, so we go out drinking, and we're at this bar in Salt Lake City, and it's like half, you know, UVM, I want to say, was a 16C, got knocked out, and Hugs got tossed uh, when they, since he had played Gonzaga. I want to say it was an 8-9 game, but maybe that wasn't what it was, but gets tossed. And so we were at the bar, and a couple of the the uh, Vermont players come up to this other guy and go, "Hugs is here, and he's you know he was with so and so, and they had a couple more details." And so we end up seated near them at one of these high top tables, and you know he's back drinking, it's, it's serious drinking or whatever, and he's with Andy Kennedy and a couple other people. Andy Kennedy is an assistant of his at the time, and. Guy comes over, two guys, pretty good-sized guys. Do you remember John Ruiz, the boxer? Yeah, I remember that name. So this is what this other guy looks like. It's not, you know, because obviously Huggins is a big dude, and Andy Kennedy's at least tall. You know, it's not like they're guys that Stu would pick a fight with at the local, right. you know, Bennigan's or whatever. So, but this other guy kind of gets in Andy Kennedy's face, and then Huggins stands up, and he's not really in the, you know, most, you know, he's been drinking a little bit or a lot. And they're about to, it looks like they're about to go. And I mean, this is, and it's loud and people are watching. You basically have four big guys all kind of centered around. Then the other two guys, people kind of separate and the other two guys are waiting outside for Bob Huggins and Andy Kennedy. And they're waiting and then like people are trying to calm other people down or everything. And I leave the bar about an hour later. Those are half hour later. Those guys are still outside waiting out the front door for Bob Huggins. And so I walk out and I'm like, 
you know what, I better tell our desk, I'm still just going to, I call the desk and say, just a heads up, I was at such and such bar, don't be surprised if you hear of an incident, you know, of a, uh, there might be a, of an incident outside a bar, because then I you know, tell this person on the, de- so basically one of the uh, the people I filed the story to at, uh, at ESPN.com. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah, I'm not kidding. And they're like, okay, well, just you're gonna be there tomorrow. Yes, just let us know. We may get back to you. The next morning, um, somebody from ESPN on a different desk calls, and we're like, can you just check with the local police station? It turned out there were like three incidents or complaints on Huggins that night or whatever. It was a very, very bizarre thing, and I was like, oh boy. Um, and I had to call his SID and said, hey, is there any comment on this? And this poor bastard had to go ask Huggins before they were, I guess when they were on the, on the tarmac about, you know, do you have any comment on this or do you have any recollection? It was just, it was a very, very, very awkward situation. So that, that, that story, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm surprised by that story. Yeah, I'm sure. So, um, and I'm leaving out some of the, some of the more colorful details. On I'll give you one more of those pretty funny ones. He had this player at Cincinnati named Robert Whaley who had been in uh, – he, he had to play in the NBA, but he had been in some trouble in high school. He was kind of, you know, was a little on the edge. And uh, I think he had left the team. It was during a Conference USA basketball tournament. He had left the team under some duress. And I, I don't have the whole story, but I can't remember the whole story. But basically, the middle of a game, Robert, who had been either kicked off the team or left or whatever, just was at the arena and just walked down and sat on the end of the bench. And uh, and just like rejoin the team in the middle of the game, and so then afterwards, someone's like, you know, Hugs, what's up with uh, Robert Whaley? Just like, is he back on the team? Is he what is he? You know, what's his thing? And he just looks like, uh, you know, we're assessing it or something like that. And then it's like off the record, he's like, what are you going to do? He's huge. I'm not going to go down there and throw him off the. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at his, by the way, his Wikipedia page is kind of interesting. Uh, in 2008, by the way, he's a neighbor of yours. He's from somewhere in Michigan. I covered a high school. He was accused of sexual assault high school. Oh, geez. Yeah. Well, in, in September 2008, was convicted in Michigan of running a drug house, having absconded. That's a word I usually don't see a lot. Uh, from his probation, uh, issued warrant for his arrest. He, there's a bunch of other stuff in here. At one point, uh, he burglarized a Marriott, though. A few years later, so um, so that's it on yeah. him. Is that a guy you want to go down and kick off the bench? People think high school, the coaches have all the power. It's like I'm not messing with them. No, and this is a guy six ten two eighty, so definitely a, you know a big big high dude. school basketball player. Yeah, um, he plays for the Jazz. Yeah, it looks like he played for three years. So the or no, he played for actually played for played for one season and then he bounced around. He played for the Twin City Ballers. The Metros de Santiago, someplace in Italy, and then the Los Angeles Defenders. There you go. So that's your update. Um, okay, so let's – Can we? I want to slide out of college basketball for a little bit and get into something uh, since this is mostly a college football podcast. Uh, you are more versed in Penn State Sandusky scandal stuff than anyone I know and uh, have written extensively about it. And that story was back in the news uh, – we're taping this on Tuesday. The story was back in the news yesterday, Monday. Um, and I have some questions about it because, you know, I had seen an, an AP story 
uh, initially just basically talking about the first thing you see was uh, that the athletic, the former athletic director, Tim Curley, uh, pled guilty to child endangerment as it related to the Sandusky scandal, molestation scandal. Um, so that surprised me. But and I read you did a, an interesting column on it uh, subsequently, you know, I guess last night about it. So the three guys who are at the top of the Penn State food chain as it relates to that, Curley was the athletic director, uh, Graham Spanier was the president, and then it's Schultz. Um, and this is the part where I'm confused, and you can fill me in. To me, and from reading your column, Schultz should be the one most likely holding the bag, correct, in this? Well, yeah, so those are the three guys, and if you know the story at all, you know, People have mostly heard of Mike McQuarrie, the assistant, sure. the assistant, the grad assistant who goes and who walks in, sees Paterno in a lot or Paterno Sandusky in a shower in a locker room, doesn't stop it, but the next day goes and tells Joe Paterno, and the day after that, Joe Paterno calls Curley, his AD, and Gary Schultz, who's the the vice president at the school and is in charge of the campus police. They go to Paterno's house and he tells them about it, and. Those are the guys that did not, from that point on, there was not a police investigation started. No. But didn't they wait like a, wait like an exorbitant amount of time before they even contacted Mike McQuarrie, too? Like 10 days or something until they even sat down with, with, uh, with Mike McQuarrie to ask him what happened. And it was like a 15-minute thing. Like, there was no, but they called an attorney. They had outside counsel come in that afternoon. So they, like, reacted quickly, but then it was kind of like they didn't want to know. And... Um, and Spanier, the president, wasn't there, but he ended up somehow getting in on these emails, and he's on an email chain, and so they end up charging everybody with child endangerment and, and failure to report, all these perjury, all sorts of things. So five and a half years later, here we are, and they're finally set to go to trial next week, and Curley and Schultz strike a plate. And all these years, these three guys were together, were innocent, this isn't what you think, blah, 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 and then they, two of them bail on Spanier. And to, to your question, yes, Gary Schultz was the one that had the most evidence directly involved with him in this case because, A, a he was in charge of the police. So, like, Curly could be like, look, I, I was the AD. You know, I, you know, I, I was the lowest it's guy. It's bigger than me. It's over my head. Uh, you know, he could make that argument. Graham Spanier was like, I'm running an entire university here. Like, yeah, I guess I got this email, but I didn't think about, you know, I just, I should have done more, you know, whatever he wanted to make his art. And, and so those were somewhat viable. You can decide how viable of a defense that is. But um, one thing that didn't happen at Penn State was like, three guys didn't sit around a table and go, hey, we know Jerry Sandusky's out there raping kids, but we don't care. Right, let's just let them do it because, you know, like that's not how these things happen. It's like good people make really bad decisions, and sometimes they're incremental or, you know, whatever it is. And so that doesn't excuse it, and maybe others would see that as a distinction without a difference, but it's not like they had a meeting was like, we don't care. It's but more let like, me ask you this. So in your, in your story um, from Monday, you point out, and I don't know if I didn't know this or I don't even remember it, I'm just going to read it because it's easier to go this Schultz way. Has At, a file. 
Yes, at a 2013 preliminary hearing, Schultz longtime administrative assistant Joan Coble described a special file containing information about Sandusky's 1998 investigation, which predates the McQuarrie stuff, that Schultz locked in his office under strict orders for it never to be opened. Schultz, quote, mentioned to me that he has a new folder for Jerry Sandusky, Coble testified. He told me not to look at that file. His tone was very stern. I just remember thinking, I wonder what Jerry has done. Um, and then, you, as you point out, if Schultz knew about the 1998 Sandusky allegations, how could he do so little in 2001 when the case was so sickeningly similar? It's one right. of the so unanswered questions. A, a mom has her son goes to work out with Jerry Sandusky at the Penn State at football weight room. And the kid comes home with his hair wet, and the kid's like 10 years old. She goes, why is your hair wet? He says, oh, I took a shower with Coach Sandusky. And as many moms would do, she flipped out. He said, why are you showering with my boy? Calls the cops. Cops investigate Sandusky. Sandusky's like, it was an honest mistake. I wasn't thinking. Nothing bad happened. And they don't prosecute the case because there just isn't a lot of evidence there. It's a hard case to, to do. But that said... Okay, it still happened. It's really odd to shower with a 10-year-old boy, extremely. Like, knowing this and having read what, you know, pointed it out again. Yeah, like, and though, that's the problem. Like, if, if you, let's say you and I, that ever happened, somehow that ever happened. Like, you were in a shower. Let's say you're just down at the Y and you take a shower and there's some other, I don't know. I don't even know how to... Like, it's, to me, it's damning for Schultz to see that, okay, the second time this happened, especially when you're in charge... Why are you doing this again? Yeah, and you're in charge of the police. It's not like they made, like, some, some you know, your next-door neighbor who's an accountant or somebody who, like, has nothing to do with law enforcement. Like, you would have, you would have to be so... To me, I don't know where, you know, I find it incredibly hard to look... To, to look at Schultz in this case and say, like, I don't see how he's cleared in this in any way, knowing that. Again, and you know the case way better than me, but I'm like... No, that's the problem. But it, So there's a couple things here that, that, that could suggest the state doesn't think they have a strong case, despite all we just said, a really strong case against Schultz. So they're willing to give him a plea deal, even though he, he was the one to me just watching and other lawyers and stuff. I mean, his story's five years old, almost six years old. He had the most evidence against him, but they did offer him that. So they get, you know, they don't want, they get a plea deal on it. Now Schultz and Curley are going to be able to testify against Spanier. So they may still get Spanier. Schultz and Curley could still go to prison for up to five years. It's up to the, the judge. But usually when you strike a plea, you're expecting either, you know, be able to get probation or house arrest or you get to walk, you know, all together. So it, it, they're, they're hoping certainly for leniency, but that, that's under seal, so we don't know. But Schultz, Schultz cut himself a probably a pretty good deal. He's also 67 years old, and, you know, I mean, the prison for these guys is not even, not like a, you know, prison stinks for everyone, but at that age, I mean, it's pretty, it's, it's almost, you know, it's almost incredible to imagine a senior citizen who has never been in any, Never lived that kind of life. All of a sudden, going to prison. So, but I hate to use this term, devil's advocate, in this case. But I mean, who I actually think had the least evidence against them, who's now got the whole bullseye on him, including two co-defendants now, presumably ready to testify against him, and they could put the Penn State president away, and that 
was a very highly regarded person and administrator, um, you know, had high level government clearance and, I mean, was, you know, just a huge figure. And the idea that he may go to prison for this is, is pretty astounding. So this trial next week that begins is going to be uh, really incredible. And the problem these guys all face is, you know, is there a jury in Pennsylvania that wants to hear a defense about this in any way? Like, everyone's heard of Sandusky, and everyone's outraged by it. And if you're the one that's accused of covering it up, or you could have stopped it, and you didn't, is there really going to be a jury that's that sympathetic to whatever defense you come up with? Yeah, the part that I have the biggest problem with, you know, uh, on just this part of it, is, you know, you can talk about Schultz's age and people, but, like, as you said in this story, and it's, this is something I thought about, like, because of the indifference or incompetence or whatever it was, so many more kids became victims because of these guys. Like, right. and I don't think I, I get. It. I'm not trying to say you have sympathy for them, you know, in any oh, way. I know. Um, but it's like, yeah, I, it's it's a it's a weird place because, you know, and you said, you know, sometimes good people make bad decisions and make horrible, you know, and then they compound those bad decisions. It's like. And I don't want to say, okay, everything's black and white. This is a good person. This is a bad person. Now, clearly, Jerry Sandusky is a is an evil human being. Um, but when you start kind of unwrapping this, and it has so many layers to it, um, yeah, you know, I, if, I guess I shouldn't have used the term "good person." No, no, I didn't I mean, think someone someone who wasn't like they didn't wake up saying, "I'm indifferent to pedophilia," right? They just ended up being indifferent to it. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, it just, sometimes we over dramatize this thing and it's like, you know, it's those guys at Penn State, like there's something in the water at Penn State or there's something in the water at Baylor. It's like, now there's a culture that somehow fails and creates these situations where all of a sudden everyone loses their mind and, and, and starts justifying bad decisions. Well, I want to get to that, that Baylor point in a second, but let me get back to Penn State for a minute. So, I believe, and I think social media has accelerated this and maybe changed it a lot in the last decade, but I feel like a lot of the backlash to Penn State, I don't want to say it's piling on because that's that's trying to give, you know, whatever happened a pass to some degree. But I think it's like people are like, how can you how can you write positively about Penn State? Like Penn State just won the Big Ten. They just had a great year. Keep in mind, no players were involved in this case, in this scandal as it was. It was, you know, related to Jerry Sandusky and the people, you know, in positions of leadership there. But I think what happens is you had a lot of Penn State fans because it's a huge, passionate fan base who I think were, some of them were really twisted and, you know, confused and, you know, a lot of their identity was tied into Joe Paterno and how it felt in those four or five years that they were on that campus. And so when you'd see them, whether defending or trying to explain or talk about it, that only fed more of the venom coming back at the place. And you got this really ugly cycle. Um, and I don't, you know, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I think, you know, this is this is a very, very complicated situation and complicated dynamic um, I mean, for you as a, as a, as a media person who's covered it, how hard is it to separate what happened there, the people who, I don't want to say enabled it, and then the people who cheered it on and want to move forward? So, so there's a challenge in covering it. And it's, again, it's been five and a half years. And I think I'm the, other than the, uh, the writers and, and TV people inside Pennsylvania, 
particularly in Harrisburg and, and State College, like no nobody else still covers it. Like everybody jumped the story originally, but nobody's still covering it. And so there's context to all this stuff. And so it, it, just because you're covering the machinations of a trial and how two guys just backstab the other guy doesn't mean that you have at any point less than like, not every single, like it kind of goes without saying that what Sandusky did is the worst and all like there's more, it's, it's a, like you said, it's a depth to the story. And there's been times when people have criticized me for not writing hard enough and others when I'm too hard, like, you know, for being too hard and, there's a context and there's information that comes out and it's a long story. Five and a half years ago, almost five and a half years ago, that, that, that Saturday morning when it broke. And uh, it was a day of an LSU-Alabama one-two yep. game. They're playing a one-two game in uh, Tuscaloosa. One and two in, in Tuscaloosa. It was in Tuscaloosa. First call, my hotel room in Birmingham, Alabama, when this thing first came out. And there's so many different things. I wrote a story in November about Mike McQuarrie, who's won over $12 million as a whistleblower. And I'm I'm pretty sympathetic. I've watched Mike McQuarrie three different times tell his story on the stand under oath. And he is a villain to many people in the story when he's 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 imperfect, for sure, and made huge mistakes. But he was actually also a victim in this case, not a victim like the sexual assault victims but a victim of, of, of getting fired when you're a whistleblower. There's just a lot of elements to these stories, and so they go in a lot of different ways, and that's why I do like and I appreciate both Yahoo and the readers who read a lot of these stories and keep the traffic up so I can keep justifying it, but allowing me to continue to cover the story long after the, the initial flare and headline, and it's, it's not wrong to say everybody was, you know, there's all sorts of terrible stuff at Penn State. And Jerry Sandusky's the worst. The paternal should have done this. But there's also a lot of nuances and more. And so the, the attempt to check, the, the challenge is trying to cover the whole thing and, and keep and be fair and, and listen to, I, I will, if I go to the, to the hearings or to the Spaniard trial, I will, I will go in and I will sit. And when Graham Spanier's defense makes its opening statement, I will try to sit there and listen and say, with an open mind, what have you got to say? You know, I was at Aaron Hernandez's second murder trial a couple weeks ago in Boston. And, you know, I mean, the guy's already serving life in prison. And I'm going to sit there and listen and try to report and consider what his attorney is saying at the beginning of the thing. I think that's, that's the way to cover it doesn't mean you're going to agree with it or all of a sudden become like sympathetic to Aaron Hernandez, but you're like, what do you got? This is, this is your day in court. Let's see what you have because these stories are, they're complicated. They're way more than just, you know, who won the game and who lost the game. Yeah. You mentioned Baylor a minute ago. So when, like I said, when I had seen the AP news flash about, about the AD, former AD, I remember I had tweeted, you know, just who he was and then said, you know, this is the worst college sports scandal I can remember. And, you know, then I had a couple of people saying Baylor's giving it a run for its money. And then I, there's been subsequent, I, there was two Baylor stories that had, Baylor connected stories that had come out even after that. One was uh, Trayvon Armstead, who's a former player there who was linked to the Baylor sexual assault scandal, got arrested uh, for uh, alleged domestic abuse as as well as I think he kicked out there for kicked out the window of a police car in Vegas 
And then there was a Baylor staffer on Matt Rule, the new coach's staff, who got uh, let go reportedly for sending inappropriate text messages to like a teenager. And so people are like, you know, what's the culture there? And I got to admit, like, you know, I think there's a, you know, it's Baylor. And this is the second time Matt Rule has had one of his staffers let go. There was a strength coach who I think uh, got involved with a prostitute about a month ago, and that was on there. So, you know, individually, if that doesn't happen at Baylor, I think those stories kind of, you know, but nothing happens in a vacuum. I mean, I don't think this, the, the Matt Rule's culture is connected to, to uh, what had gone on there with Art Bryles and the leadership, which has gotten swept out. But I think right now, it feels like the place. It feels like if you're looking from the outside in, that the place is toxic at this point. Right, but there needs to be some perspective of like, because it's too it's too easy to say, oh, it's something about Baylor, and and look, you know, the Baylor scandal and the decisions that Bryles and and uh, you know Ian McCaw and and and, and uh, Ken Starr, Star, yeah. those those guys. That's one thing, but there's all sorts of guys, there's all sorts of people texting the wrong, you know. Unfortunately, that happens. You remember a month ago when one of Jerry Sandusky's kids was arrested? Yep. Yeah. With and and it was and they said, well, it's like molestation or sexually inappropriate. He was sending texts, and everyone said, oh, see, he's just like his dad. And uh, you know, I'm not defending any of this at all, but there were two totally different crimes. Jerry Sandusky was was with you know preteen boys. This guy was like text sixteen year old girls. It's a, you know, it's like a different, it's a different crime. If you talk to sexual assault experts, it's a totally different thing. But everyone just pop, oh, see? And I think there's there's some of that where you're just like, well, hold on on, on the Baylor thing. I mean, it, obviously, the Baylor's having a horrible run. And, you know, you would think if you went and was at Baylor, you'd be at even, you know, not that this is ever appropriate, but you'd be particularly sensitive to um, it, yeah. Straight and narrow. Uh Look, I, I, I mean, I have less. Some of the coverage just becomes overwhelming, and there, there's just there's great stories and nuances here. I, I mean, I'll tell you, the redemption of Mike McCleary is one of the most fascinating stories I've ever seen. I mean, that guy, he got screwed over by everybody, and was literally the he was as big of a villain as, as Sandusky at one point. Well, what I think uh, as what, what, it, what everyone wrote about him and thought about him. Well, I think what one of the things that played in themselves who put out a presentment that just wasn't accurate on what he saw. It made him look even worse than he than it, than it was. Well, I think what also played into this played into the McQuarrie part is you had this guy, I mean he's a big he's a former player there, a big six five, whatever he is, two hundred twenty pound guy. And it's easy for a lot of people to put themselves in his shoes presumptively and go, Oh yeah, I would have knocked Jerry Sandusky out. And the reality is you'd like to think you would have done that. But we don't know. We none of us know how we'd have reacted to that. I mean, you know, maybe if you're in law enforcement, you've been in a similar situation. Player, his flight or fight, he flipped, flipped. You know, so why do you think you would? And in that story, with the, the original presentment, and probably the number one scene that seared into everyone's collective idea in America is he walked in, and they, it's literally written this way. You know, the boy was pressed up against the shower wall, and Sandusky is penetrating them, and, like, it's a graphic and gruesome and horrific scene. Uh, Mike McQuarrie never saw that. He never testified. Not one time did he ever, ever say he saw that. 
the state embellished it, built it up, and wrote this thing in the presentment, a scene that never happened. He walked in and saw two guys in the shower. And it's a, and now, again, distinction without difference, fine. It's, it's a horrible thing. And he's the first one to say, I should just grab the kid and call the cops and said, what's going on? But he didn't. But it's a little different than what people think he saw. So maybe you go, did I just see what I saw? Like, did you just walk in and punch a 65-year-old guy out in the face? I don't, you know, like, there's a lot more things. Life's a lot more complicated than we make it. And, you know, that doesn't mean it's not, it could be worse, it could be better. But it's just, I don't know, I just, I try to get to, like, what's the real story here. And I, I think you're right, like, Twitter sometimes exasperates. It's just easy to be like, oh, Baylor, here you go. Well, what's the story with Baylor? What is this, does this really relate to that? Uh, did anyone learn, or is this just some idiot assistant coach? you know, hiring a prostitute or, or, or texting some girl that he met, you know, like, fire him, sure, but I don't know that that has anything to do with our bribes. No, and I, I don't think it does. I mean, again, maybe I'm giving a pass to, to Matt Rule, well, but... It doesn't mean you're excusing Art Bryles. Right. It's just, factually, it has, one has nothing to do with the other. It doesn't mean you, you're going easy on Art Bryles. No, that's horrible. The worst. But, that doesn't, you still gotta go with some facts here. You can't just pile everything on. And then, Nobody comes in and cleans it up. Before I get to one other thing, I want to ask you, because it dawned on me when you were talking about the Aaron Hernandez story, in addition to obviously Penn State. So when you got into this, you mentioned, you know, basketball times. And I remember, you know, you had done a ton of grassroots college basketball and kind of covered in a way a lot of other beat writers weren't doing it at the time. I mean, is this like if somebody told you, hey, this is the path you'd be on, 20 years later, would you go, oh, I could see that? Or is this just kind of evolved with, with how the media and the sports media has kind of shifted? You mean covering crime? Like covering crime, crime, covering, I mean, because you're bouncing around, you're, you're in NASCAR, you're doing some NFL, and I'm sure you're doing some of the, you know, filling in the gaps where they need to be filled in. But, like, is this the path you had kind of, could you have envisioned some of this or wanted this, to, you know, 20 years ago? Um, I mean, I would have, I'm sure I would have wanted it. I mean, I have a great job. My job is interesting almost every single day. So, um, and I really like I like meeting people and things like that. So, I, you know, I probably would have loved it if I could have conceived it. I didn't think I would maybe do this much crime, um, but there's a there's an audience for it. And, you know, I've always been a columnist that tried to serve the audience. You know, I never worked at a newspaper where you could just you knew you know three hundred thousand of them were going to land on driveways and you didn't matter what you wrote um i've always had to fight for every every click every why spend five minutes with me when you could be doing anything else in the world let alone anything else on the internet facebook or whatever you want to do so i try to write what people are interested in and and true crime is is one of those i mean it's hundreds of years i mean that's just human nature they've always been fascinated with various crimes so i do think to your credit you've been more you've been more open about the aspects of, okay, this is probably for clicks and this is probably for traffic when a lot of, uh, you know, other media may view that as a little bit taboo, not taboo, but they're almost like, you know, they're, they're afraid to admit sometimes that there's a bottom line that they're trying to, to serve. I mean, covering like a, 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 a murder trial is not really clickbait. I mean, you're covering right. serious stuff. <laughs> And, and you're trying to cover it in a professional manner. So I don't have any problem, and we've never had a problem with Yahoo saying, what 
what are people interested in? You don't keep covering something that, but when Tiger Woods was rolling, I covered a lot more golf. Now I barely cover any golf because people don't read it. That's all right. You know, you can sit there and complain about it. There was a time when I covered, you know, an entire NCAA basketball tour. Now we kind of see it the, the way the internet is now. Yeah, I think the first couple rounds aren't, they aren't built for writing. They're built for like, buzz, you watch the buzzer beating highlight or, you know, the media, media changes, the internet changes all the time, particularly. So what, what can you give people? And so this is, if people are interested in a trial, I'll cover the trial. If people were fascinated about every single detail of the current Aaron Hernandez trial, I'd be in Boston covering the Aaron Hernandez trial. They aren't that interested in it until maybe a certain witness or, you know, does it look like he could get off or something like that. So it, it, it changes, and you just got to be – I just think you're – why wouldn't you try to be, you know, as, as uh, I don't know, reactive to what the audience is telling you? It doesn't mean you do whatever they want necessarily, but – there's some general theme because they may not know they want to read about that, but there's general stuff. I mean, look, you're going to get more people read your story if you're covering. You talk college football, right? You cover write a story about Alabama, more people are going to read about it than if you write a story about Montana State. It's just it better be one heck of a story at Montana State. Like, why fight uphill? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of it is it more you're trusting your instincts, or is it more you're kind of looking around at social media and Twitter and different or you know, different oh, things. Metrics, metrics at the site and stuff like that. Mm. And, and, and you trust your instincts. I mean, mm. I know when I can, you know, you may, they may, nobody woke up yesterday and say, oh, I'm really hoping I'm going to read a story about Penn State. They probably forgot about the Jerry Sandusky thing, but if you write it in an interesting way, then all of a sudden a lot of people read it. One of the things that does really well or does better than anything, actually, what I found for for FoxSports.com is MMA. Uh, and so since there's no stew, we can talk a little more of this. You and I are both interested in it, and you've covered it a lot more than me. So the kind of the biggest story out there that seems like it's always getting traction was Conor McGregor. And do you think he'll ever fight Floyd Mayweather? I think it's still, I don't know about ever, but... I don't, I don't know. I, I am still believing, I still believe that he will fight uh, the UFC before he fights Mayweather. The UFC has very little incentive to put McGregor against Mayweather. They could, unless they get a really big cut of the action um, or somehow contractually force him to fight again. The, the worry with McGregor is he goes and fights they have this huge fight and they each make a hundred million dollars or something like that. It's a big success. And then McGregor says, I'm retiring. Why am I going to go fight an MMA match and, and potentially get beaten to a pulp for $9 million? Right. Like there's, it's just like, I'm done. Good. I got my money. I'm out of here. McGregor is a fascinating guy. And, uh, I love his story. He's a, you know, he's very interesting to talk to, you know, he was on like within five years ago or so, I don't know, maybe it's a little longer now. He was on Irish Dole. I mean, he was a, a failed like plumber and was trying to make it an MMA, but he's getting welfare. And it, you know, he talks about how emotionally defeating that is to be like a grown man and, and need that. And, and so he's, he's all about cash and he always has been. And one of the reasons he's so exciting is he will take the biggest fight right away. Let's go. Whoever, whoever can get me the most money, I'm going to take it because he just wants to get his cash. I think he knows that you're vulnerable in MMA. You can't win them all. You can't, 
the long game in MMA, like maybe you can in boxing. And so he just, he'll, let's go. And then he fights that way. So when, you know, Nate Diaz at, a, you know, 170, sure, let's do it, you know. Um, and boom, they sell over a million pay-per-views. You want a rematch of the same thing? Yeah, let's do it. I'll find a way to beat you because the money's there. Where business-wise, you might say, well, I'll slip down to a lower weight. So I don't know. And that's why he wants to fight Mayweather. Is he going to lose to Mayweather in a boxing match? Almost certainly. Almost certainly. I mean, could hit him. He's got a puncher's cheek. He can punch, but... Nobody, yeah, but nobody land. You know, r- real boxers right, don't land a glove on. Don't land a glove on. Nobody lands on him, so yeah. he's probably going to lose. But if he gets a hundred million dollars, what's he care? He wants the money, and I think it's that 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 drive that comes from ha- literally having nothing. Not just when you're a little kid, but like when he was like in his twenties, and that humiliation. So um, I don't know. I don't. I, I I I've said all along it wouldn't happen. I, or I didn't think it would happen, you know, 1% chance, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 10 um, You know, some of the reporting, you know, Mayweather says, I'm out of retirement. I'm, well, then everyone says, oh, the fight's going to happen. Like, no, like, it's up to Dana White with his fight. Conor McGregor owes the UFC four more fights on his contract. He's under contract. I mean, you know, so what's he going to do? It's like Tom Brady said, I'm going to go play for a Canadian football team. No, you're not. Who would be okay? Let's take Floyd out of there. Who would be the four fights you'd most like to see Conor McGregor have? We've seen him fight Diaz uh, twice. I would have liked to have seen him fight Cowboy Cerrone until I saw Cowboy Cerrone get pummeled by yeah, Masvidal. Cowboy, I mean, I, I'm fine with a third Diaz fight. I'm fine. I mean, you know, Khabib, who just you know missed. I, I think that's a great fight. For Tony Ferguson's a great fight. Do you um, want to see him fight uh, Dos Anjos? I actually wouldn't mind seeing him fight Jose Aldo again. Just see if it was fluky, that 12 seconds or whatever it was? That was the one I thought McGregor, you know, McGregor, Aldo hadn't lost 10 years. Aldo's a great fighter, and I thought he would, I thought that's going to be a huge challenge for McGregor. I think Aldo can win this fight, and he got him in that one shot, and it's like, Aldo was stupid. He ran in, he took the bait, he ran in and got hit. And um, that's a real tough fight for McGregor, man. Um, and I think that's why you got McGregor didn't want any part of that. And I, I don't blame him. I wouldn't want to be hey, – he beat him, man. He went in whatever that was, 13 – I was there that night. Um, it was it was wild, exciting. Um, so, I mean, there's some really good fights there. I just – I don't know if there's a fight other than Diaz that can get over a million pay-per-views for, for Conor McGregor right now. You know, when he fought – at, at the UFC in New York, it didn't, or maybe it just made a million, but he was doing one, three, one, six. Like, you got to have a B side with McGregor. And, uh, and so, you know, then you just get into like, where's the money? He's got a lot of money now. Does he, does he, does he make it? The business of UFC is really interesting and it's changed dramatically because William Morris Endeavor owns the company now, but they paid $4 billion. They have a debt, they have debt service to pay every month. And so they need, like, pay, their pay-per-view business is not rolling right now. It's been a very slow year. And the fights that I'll buy and, you know, a couple hundred thousand of us will buy every month, that isn't going to pay the bill. They need million million pay-per-view fights. And they lost Ronda. And, and John Jones it never delivered huge numbers, but he's one of their bigger stars, is, is suspended. And... Uh, Sorry about that. And Connor's sitting out right now. You know, there's a lot of things going on that, that make it pretty interesting on where you go with where you go forward with 
You, you, you did a really good column, I thought, after Rousey got knocked out the last time and talked about the evolution of women's MMA. How much blowback were you seeing? I mean, obviously, there had been a lot of talking head stuff about people trying to, uh, I would say, just erase whatever Ronda Rousey did as she was fluky. I mean, was that something as somebody who's covered MMA for a decade or so, kind of like, hey, that's people who just don't know what they're talking about? or Because you came out pretty strong on that, I thought. MMA media, but the guys that, you know, Kevin Oli, Yahoo, or the guys at MMA Fighting, or, uh, you know, Lance Pugmai, just, just uh, even more, there's just guys that have really, they're in at every card and stuff. I mean, I pop in a few times a year, but anybody who's covered MMA for a long time, none of those people did two things with Ronda. One, they never said that Ronda's the greatest athlete that's all time, or, or went over the top. I mean, there was people who talk about Ronda Rousey would beat Floyd Mayweather in a fight. Remember that one? Because Floyd, yeah. got, like, well, there were people who were saying Paige Van Zant would. would didn't weren't there people saying Paige Van Zant would beat would beat uh, Floyd Mayweather in a fight at one point too? Right, and it's just sort of like it, it got it got over the top with that. But but the, the the people that cover the sport all the time and know the sport, the trainers, the other fighters, never said that. But they also never said, oh, she's just a fraud. She was a media creation. No, Ronda Rousey's a great fighter. She's a great fighter. And um, she's a great champion. Um, I think it was like, you know, she gets beat by Amanda Nunez in this last fight. And, and everyone says, well, they were hiding her. Well, like, I don't know what it was. Nine, I didn't look at the thing, but like nine months before, she fought... Amanda Nunez and, and, and Kat Stignano fought. I think I mispronounced her last name. Singano, yeah. They had a fight, and, 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 and Kat won. Kat beat Amanda Nunez. Amanda Nunez wasn't that good then. And then the next fight, Kat fought um, Rousey, and Rousey beat her in like 13 seconds. So you can't say she was hiding her. Like, this, this is who there was to fight. And then Amanda Nunez applied herself and developed and got better, and then boom. She's a heck of a lot better than she was. Holly Holm was a lot better than she was. Once the money comes in and these these women can train and and not have to work side jobs, where they get they get in on the, now they're all training with like you know uh, alpha male or you know America's top team. They're all with the best trainers. Now they can develop in a way that you wouldn't be able to otherwise. So they they grow their game really quickly. And 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 it doesn't mean Rousey was a fraud. It's just that's what happened. Like, you remember the old days of MMA? Like, the guys that would win in, in UFC 30 yeah. would get destroyed at UFC 60, and 60 get destroyed at 100. And like, Well, look what happened to know. Tank Abbott was, was a big name, and then all of a sudden he gets, you know, they bring in more guys, and then the wrestlers came in, and people who were more involved than the wrestlers. Liddell and Tito Ortiz, were they great MMA stars? Absolutely. You put them in with a freak like John Jones, John Jones would destroy Chuck Liddell. But doesn't mean that, that Chuck Liddell wasn't a great champion. It wasn't a, you know, it's just the sport evolved until there, because there's all of a sudden an athlete like John Jones sitting there going, hey, I want to do this. And he develop, devotes his life to becoming the champ. And so it just, it just morphs. And that's, it happens really quick at the beginning. And then it pans out slower as more and more people are in. And so I don't think you can take, I don't, I don't think it's fair to say Ronda Rousey was a fraud. She was a great champion, 
her reign just didn't last very long. If you aren't getting better in MMA, you will lose. Like, what works this year will not work next year, particularly in women's MMA, which is just such a, such a young sport. So I defend Rousey uh, on that, you know. Uh, but I was never one who was sitting there saying, Ronda Rousey would beat men up. Ronda Rousey's the greatest female athlete of all. I mean, you know, there was, it was like the casual media overblew her up and then tore her down. I think there was a lot of us who just were always there in the middle saying, wait a minute, none of, neither side of this equation is correct. I think in a way that's the way everything is going to work now because if you want to find something to be outraged about, you can find it because everybody has an opinion now. Right. And I think that's... And yeah, this is what gets you attention. Yeah, just... Uh, you know what? Ronda Rousey would beat Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match. No, she would <laughs> hit him. If Amanda Nunez... If it, Floyd Mayweather is not a strong puncher. I guarantee he punches harder than Amanda Nunez. Right. Now, come on. I mean, these things are just stupid sometimes. How often do you, I mean, you don't do a ton of TV. How often do you sit back and watch just as somebody and go, God, these people are embarrassing the profession I'm in? <laughs> I don't, I don't I, it's not always TV. It could be anything. It I could be, yeah. I don't watch a lot of them. I, I don't want to, I try to just have my own opinions on things. I try to base things on, like, reporting and, you know, not that, like, that sounds like holier than thou, but, um, I'm not like the guy, like I try, I have opinions on things I try to really know about. I don't have opinions on like whether that was a great trade, very rarely. You, you know, like I'm not, there was, it's always like draft time, people are like, well, is that, is that a good pick for, I don't. Would you want to do those shows, like any of the talking head shows? I mean, is that appeal to you? I mean, if somebody said the money was right or is that just like, where is that on your radar? Cause those are all, you know, it's covering a lot of the same, it's not covering, but it's, it's talking about a lot of the same stuff you cover. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I'd be interested in, in this, I guess, discussing anything sort of like, I like being able to report on things and go to places. So I think there's that. And I'm also I have two kids that I, you know, being a father is really important. So I travel enough. Um, I don't know. I've, I got a great job. I like what I do. So I'm not really seeking to do anything other than what I already get to do. As long as, I mean, you know, I have a fascinating job. And uh, like I said, it's interesting almost every day. Look at all the different stuff we've talked about. Yeah, I know. I know. We could talk a lot more, but I've kept you 40 minutes longer than I told you I would. So thank you very much. Um, George is out of this. We're just cutting his time. I know. Well, look, Stuart doesn't even know who Conor McGregor is, so. <laughs> He's not an MMA fight fan. He is not an MMA no. fight fan, no. He is, uh, I think Stu's, Stu's more of a, uh, Stu's more of, he's not even a pro wrestling fan. I don't even know where Stu, Stu fits. He loves Northwestern, though. That I know. He classes us up. He's, he's an intellectual. Uh, no, he's not an intellectual. He went to a good school. He's not an intellectual at the least. That's so, true. so uh, okay, Dan, people should follow you. It's very simple at Dan Wetzel. Anything you want to promote? You have a book coming out? Anything or? Uh, no, I want to promote the Audible. All right. Well, bless you for that. And you can check out Dan's podcast with the esteemed well, Pat Forty. We're not coming back until like September. All right. So you can wait with bated breath. Yeah, I got nothing. Okay. All right. Well, follow him on Twitter and read all his stuff. Uh, Dan, seriously, as, as I've said many times, you are the best out there. Um, and if we were starting a draft on starting a website or a sports media entity, you'd be the first pick in the draft. So. Well, thank you. 
No, unfortunately, they don't give seed money to guys who went to junior college. So I don't think I can help you on that front. But uh, fight the good fight. Thanks, Dan. See ya. For more college football talk delivered straight to your phone, subscribe to The Audible from Fox Sports on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.